0: Now, what were the apostles teaching? They were, first of all, you can see it in Peter's sermon, they were preaching Christ from the Old Testament. They were drawing out Christ from all the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, from Isaiah, from Joel, even from Psalms. And... They were teaching Christ and him crucified. They were teaching the good news, the fullness of the gospel, that Christ had come, he'd suffered and died, he'd lived his sinless life, and he rose again on the third day, and whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. Well, good morning, brethren. Uh, For those who I didn't meet last time, my name is Jim Nesgoda, my wife, Bethany, is with me we're from gcc in san antonio and we really appreciate being able to come up and fellowship and for me to share the word with you you're going to get an abbreviated message this morning due to time constraints so if we could turn to acts chapter 2 verse 40. i'll give a uh, we'll read and i'll give a brief introduction and we'll pray Acts 2 at verse 40. Verse 40. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So the title of my message this morning is Acts 2.42, more than descriptive. And that's a carefully chosen title. The reason being is you'll often hear in our circles this particular verse and really all of Acts chapter 2 talked about as a history lesson, as a historical narrative that contains no real instruction for the church today. That it's a nice history lesson, uh, it's kind of a neat thing God did to inaugurate the church and we can read it with that type of a mindset and miss. Certain instructions that there are for us in this scripture now, absolutely the book of Acts and chapter two particularly is a historical narrative that's a type of literature that it is it's a descriptive text but there's two relevant points I wanted to draw out, particularly out of verse forty two today and those are these two points. the first one is what's it describing this isn't this isn't describing something about a Type of cedar tree in Lebanon, some detail we read that's captured in the word from the Old Testament that does have meaning, but this is describing the inauguration of the Christian church. Pure, simple, primitive, foundational New Testament Christianity. A spirit birthed work of God in a people, in a people who previously were without hope, were lost under the power of the Roman Empire, Jews who had all types of traditions, all types of powerless traditions, I'll add at that, empty religion, rituals, looking for a Messiah, and they missed him when they came. And this is the great hope of the church in its birth. And so we don't want to minimize that by glossing over it. And the second point is, historical narratives, when you're reading scripture and it's describing events that took place, there often is value that's to be found in those narratives. Uh, One example we see of that, don't turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says of the Jews in the wilderness, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And he goes on and says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So if there's these events that took place thousands of years ago, that took place prior to the cross under the law, which was the ministry of condemnation, that were written as warnings and examples to keep us from sin, how much more did God have this narrative in the book of Acts recorded as an example for us, the very birth of the church, the very life of the church, the the hope of Christ in his people through the Holy Spirit. So we don't want to just blow past that. We want to look at this carefully, at all the nuances And we want to mine precious things out of it that'll be profitable to our souls and as a local church. And with that, let's pray. Yeah, Father, we do thank you we can be here today. Thank you that my wife and I can be here with these precious saints, Lord, and share your word. And I pray you help me, Lord, to share it in simplicity, to share it in truth, to share it in the power of your spirit, God. I I ask that you would strengthen your people through it. Lord, Lord, just as you stirred your saints back then and brought great life to your church, Lord, I I ask that you would continue to stir this body, to encourage them, to bless them, that we could rejoice in you more, that we could glorify you more, that we could have an expectancy that you're still Lord of heaven and earth, that you're Lord of your church, and you rule on high, Lord, and that you would bless your saints for gathering faithfully through the teaching of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I'll spend most of my time in verse 42, but I did want to just review a couple things in verses 40 and 41. So to read that again, And with many other words he, Peter, bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So our text picks up where Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, has just preached one of the greatest sermons ever preached on the day of Pentecost. This sermon came, and it happened in the context uh, that had a much more real weight of all the promises of God that were contained in the Messiah among them. And what I mean by that is that all of Isaiah's prophecies had just been fulfilled in their midst. The virgin birth, the Messiah walking their streets and doing good, living a sinless life, being led like a lamb to the slaughter, the Father crushing him and making him a sin offering for us. And the people had just rejected him, according to Psalm 118, and had him crucified by the hands of wicked men. These things took place in their midst. He walked the streets that they walked. He went about them. And Peter goes on to tell them, according to David's prophecy, that God did not leave Christ, the Holy One, to see corruption in the grave. But he raised him from the dead three days later. The prophecy of Joel, the promise of the Holy Spirit, had just been fulfilled among them with God pouring out a spirit on all flesh, on Jews and Gentiles and young and old and men and women that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. This was a reality among these people. And Peter preaching to them against their sin of rejecting the Messiah. They're pricked in their hearts. They're cut to their hearts. And they repent and they place their faith in Christ. And they're willing to be baptized and identify as his disciples. Those who had previously rejected him. And so here we are. They become new creations. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. They're born again. All things have become new. The old is done away with. They're now worshipers in spirit and in truth. They've been, they're being brought off from the old covenant from the letter that kills, to the Spirit, which brings life. And more than that, on a much larger scale around them, the veil of the temple had already been torn in two. And the whole old system, the way that they did church, if you would, the temple service, the Levitical priesthood, all of the rituals are passing away, and soon God will destroy the very temple through the Romans in 70 A.D., And they're brought off into this new and living way in the new covenant where we become the priesthood. Peter says that we become bricks or parts, stones in the temple of God. Paul says you are the temple of the living God. And they're brought out into this new and living way where there's no more priesthood because we're all priesthood. And there's no more temple because we are the temple. And I wanted to look at Verse 42, with those realities, those clear, undisputable, biblical truths in mind. And I wanted us to be instructed by verse 42 with that in mind because our religious flesh is very prone to slide back and gravitate towards rituals, to gravitate towards traditions, to gravitate towards old covenant thinking to dry formalities to doing church as a routine and that type of life is a poor substitute for life in the spirit and for the realities of the new covenant so i wanted to just try to stir us today with this time i have in verse 42 they devoted themselves to four things i I don't have time to argue Some scholars say there's three things, that it's breaking bread and fellowship are are one in the original, but we won't go there today because the message stands either way. So the first thing of these four that we're going to look at is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what were the apostles' teaching? They were, first of all, you can see it in Peter's sermon, they were preaching Christ from the Old Testament. They were drawing out Christ from all the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, from Isaiah, from Joel, even from Psalms. And they were teaching Christ and him crucified. They were teaching the good news, the fullness of the gospel, that Christ had come, he'd suffered and died, he'd lived his sinless life, and he rose again on the third day, and whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. And they taught the people to obey everything that Christ had commanded them according to his word. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And of special note, I want to I stress this point. They were preaching the person of Jesus Christ, the Lord himself. Not just doctrines about Christ, not just the teachings of Christ, but Christ Jesus himself. And in all of our doctrinal and theological pursuits, we need to have that goal in mind. To know Christ more. To understand his heart and his will. To have our hearts lifted up in worship to Christ more and more. That's the end goal of all teaching and doctrine. So that we can rightly love him, rest in him obey him and glorify him in all areas of our life. Charles Spurgeon put it like this in his message, Love to Jesus. We want to have a real Christ more fully preached and more fully loved by the church. We fail in love because Christ is not real to us as he was to the early church. They preached Christ himself, his hands, his feet, his side, his eyes, his head, his crown of thorns, the sponge, the vinegar, the nails. Oh, for the Christ of Mary Magdalene rather than the Christ of the critical theologian, give me the wounded body of divinity rather than the soundest system of theology. Brethren, we need Christ. We need Christ in in our midst. We need Christ in reality. And so they devoted themselves to this type of teaching from the apostles, as a means to that end. And we don't have the apostles here with us, obviously, but we have their doctrine, we have their teaching here in our Bibles. And when we come to the Word of God, and we're looking at the attributes of God and the holiness of God, and all of these these areas of doctrine and theology, let's keep Christ front and center in all of our pursuings, so, we are expected to continue, as another version says, steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, very much so. So, this is a narrative that says they continued, or devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but we ourselves are to continue devoting ourselves to the scriptures, the apostles' teaching and the rest of the scriptures. Paul told the church in Thessalonica I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The New King James says to all the holy brethren, that is to all the church. God expects his word to be read among all believers. Paul told the church, the Colossians, to share their epistle after they'd all read it with another church and to read the epistle he had sent to another church. So God expects the whole church to read the whole of his word that he's left for us here in the canon of Scripture. Not only through Timothy's, who Paul instructs to give themselves to the reading of Scripture and exhortation and teaching, not only through the reading of the word from the pulpit as it is, but to the reading of the word in our own personal time and in our homes. And if we could turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, I wanted to look at a text together at 6-4. And while you're turning there, I'll make this comment. Personal devotions and family devotions are not the inventions of the Reformers or the Puritans. Personal devotions and family devotions are the invention of God himself. And it's been that way from back here in the beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 6 at verse 4. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You know, you see Jesus repeatedly asking the people of his day questions like, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He'll say things like, haven't you read in the scriptures that the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? The Lord Jesus expressed his professed people to be given to the scriptures. So brethren, I'm going I'm to skip for brevity the rest of the teaching on the apostles' doctrine or the apostles' teaching as the ESV says. But we need to make sure that we hold fast to this teaching and not be among those of whom it's said that the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entered in and choked the word and it proved unfruitful. We need to be given to the word of God lest we're found like dry branches who were hearers of the word but not doers of it. They were hearers of the word searching the scriptures intently but never found Christ as the end of our searching. So brethren, we're to be instructed, we're to be devoted to the apostles teaching and were to be devoted to fellowship that word fellowship it comes from the greek word koinonia it means a partnership sharing in and communion paul used it in first corinthians 1 9 when he said that god is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son jesus christ our lord now You're not going to find a text in your Bible that says, thou shall fellowship. You're not going to find an instructive text that says that. But you're going to find plenty of instructive text that tell us to gather out various aspects of fellowship and to do so in person, like do not forsake gathering together. You're going to find it said to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So we're to partner in each other's trials and victories, and we're to partner in each other's perseverance in the faith. We're to partner in making sure that we endure to the end. Hebrews 3 reads, Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, maybe your work week legitimately, maybe your home life legitimately You've taken out all extra activity, and you can't gather together as a church multiple times or daily, as the writer of Hebrews suggests. But I hope, brethren, and trust that you have WhatsApp or you have smartphones that you can redeem by when you're praying or when you're thinking of brothers and sisters or those in the church, that you can take a couple minutes to send them the scripture or the exhortation that's on your heart for them. At the very least, at the very least, that would be a minimal fulfilling of the type of fellowship in regards to the local church that the Lord has laid out in the New Testament pattern for the church. Now, that is not the pattern of our traditions today, even in Reformed churches. That is the pattern or an expectation that you could draw out from the New Covenant Scriptures. It is much deeper and much more real than what we're accustomed to. And you see it down in verse 45 in our text, in Acts 2, 45. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's a real test of fellowship and love for the brethren, how much you're willing to part with with your funds, with your goods, with the world's goods to care for the needs of others. In this case, needs of those they might not have even known that well or all that long. 1 Timothy 6.18, Paul says they are to do good, those who have wealth in this present age, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So there's an imperative command. There's an instruction. Although God doesn't tell every believer to sell every possession in every church throughout every period of time, he does tell us to be ready to share as the need arises. And our fellowship extends beyond that to partnering in the advancement of the gospel. Paul told the Galatian church that James and Cephas and John had given him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that one should go and preach to the Gentiles and one one group to the Jews. So our fellowship in Christ reaches literally from our relationships one to another to the ends of the earth to partnering to further the gospel across this globe and across our city and moving forward to our third aspect of acts two forty two will be breaking bread and they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread Now, in verse 42, when it talks about breaking bread, it's it's putting the emphasis, or verse 42 is going to be speaking of breaking bread in regards to the Lord's Supper. When we all come together, we're all familiar with it, and we take the Lord's Supper together as a church. But if you look down in verse 46, it says, day by day attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes they received their food, with glad and generous hearts. Now, this gets complicated because they were taking the Lord's Supper as part of their love feast or their communal meal every week, it would appear in the early church. But we at least can draw out one distinction from this that I want to draw out that the breaking of bread in verse 42 is absolutely an imperative instruction. That's given from Christ to the apostles when he told them, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And it's likewise passed down from the apostles to the church in Corinth. As the Lord Jesus instructed them, he instructs them in the exact same words. This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's very clear. It's unmistakable. And we're familiar with that. But I want to add this this breaking bread from house to house back to the title of my message more than descriptive you'll read commentaries that say this is because there were so many people from out of town for the day of pentecost that it was necessary to show that type of hospitality and it's no longer really applicable well that is part of the reason they were breaking bread from house to house historically but you'll find i shared last time in first peter 4 that we are instructed to be hospitable to one another, and if you look at his, hospitality historically, breaking bread or sharing a meal is almost exclusively part of extending hospitality. You'll find that in Romans 12, to be hospitable to one another. You'll find, and Lord willing, if I would have another chance to preach here, you'll find breaking bread in Scripture runs much deeper than simply what we do in the bread and the wine or the juice here on Sundays, that it is a fundamental part of the relational aspect of the Christian church. But at the very least, I can tell you we're instructed to show hospitality and we're instructed to be one. Christ prayed that we all all might be one as he and the Father were one. And so this oneness... This closeness, this familial nature of the church would also indicate, what do families do? Well, healthy families, before our society deteriorated, they ate dinner together, they gathered around a meal together, and they sheared, and they communed around a meal. And you'll find that pattern throughout the Old and New Testament scriptures. Okay. And they devoted themselves to prayer. Prayer very clearly is instructed. It's an imperative command throughout the scriptures. And not only, even if it weren't a command, it's the most natural thing that a born-again believer should do is to go to their father and pray, believing that he is, knowing that he saved them, knowing in whom they believed, knowing that Christ has torn the veil and gone in before us as our great high priest and has made a way for us to come and to pray to our Father in heaven. And I'll tell you, it's the most natural thing, it's the most reasonable thing, and it is the thing that our flesh and the enemy of our soul will most seek to keep us from. I'm up here preaching this message. I had a situation, a small situation with work that was bothering me and weighing on me and making me anxious a couple weeks ago. And I let it go on for like a day and a half trying to plan how I'm going to respond to this difficult situation. And I never took it to prayer. And I went and I took it to prayer. And I can tell you, I know this isn't always the case. You're going to get an instant answer. And I had a conversation with someone about this matter that came up very shortly maybe within hours after praying in which the whole situation was diffused it was taken care of the lord took care of it for me i didn't need to have any kind of awkward conversations and i thought to myself why don't i pray more why don't i pray about everything why don't i act like that i really have a heavenly father who loves me who owns the cattle on a thousand hills who steers the hearts of kings and who desires to do good and to show himself as my father. And brethren, we need to give ourselves to prayer. We're to discipline ourselves to it. We're to pray, even if our prayer is only, Lord, teach me how to pray. Lord, give me a heart to pray. He wants our honest prayers as our father. He wants us to come before him in sincerity and truth. And whatever that starting point is for you, brethren, whether you have a deep prayer life, you're a prayer warrior as we call them, or if your prayer life's dry right now, seek your Lord. Seek him in the prayer closet. Seek him in family prayer times. And I have a couple minutes left, brethren. I've, I kind of had to run through some of these things, but this this pattern that we see, I want to make two points, first of all. I said earlier our religious flesh is prone to tradition, and ritualism i can say without any hesitancy from doing evangelism and talking to hundreds and thousands and thousands of professing christians throughout the united states that we are given to ritualism come to church on sunday come to a building listen to a message take the lord's supper maybe small talk and go home to an individualistic life and if you're really a committed believer meet for prayer on wednesday Okay, that is not, that falls, I want to be gentle, but that falls far short of the New Testament pattern for the church. And if those who like to say, well, that was just for then, this type of overzealous Christianity that Jim's preaching from Acts 2, I want to tell you that's also the testimony of the history of revivals in the church. That's the testimony of any working of God's spirit from the day of Pentecost until now, but not only is it an effect of that, here in Acts 2, it says, as they continued in these things, the Lord continued to add to the church day by day those who were being saved. It's also a means of that. So we wouldn't want to be sit down with our doctrine and of uh, Hyper Calvinism and say, well, if the Lord wants to sovereignly bring revival, then I'll go and I'll pray and I'll fellowship more and I'll I'll look at this and I'll look at it with the eyes of faith and say, More of that, Lord, whatever it looks like today, Lord, we want more of it. We want your spirit to move among us. I wanna be an active member of the body. I wanna be I wanna be fellowshipping. I want closer fellowship to fulfill your prayer that I'd be one with the brethren. And Lord Brethren, we want that. We want that. And I want to tell you this too, with the three minutes I have left to preach, I want to make a statement that God's design for the church did not begin in the 1500s in the Protestant Reformation. God's design for the church began here, in its primitive form, in its raw form, and we can see The Lord build on that throughout the epistles and throughout some clear instruction we have in the New Testament. But God's pattern for the church was born here. And in the Reformation, if you know your Reformation history, the primary, the two primary needs of the Reformation were to get the apostles' teaching back into the hands of the common people and to grab and to reclaim the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That was a weighty and fierce battle that men were shedding their blood to fight for us, to get us this word in our hands, to reclaim the truth of salvation and the doctrine of justification. And the reformers primarily were not concerned with or focusing on bringing the church back to the New Testament pattern. I'll leave you with the quote from Jim Elliott, martyred, martyred missionary. He said this, The pivot point hangs on whether or not God has revealed a universal pattern for the church in the New Testament. If he has not, then anything will do so long as it works. But I am convinced that nothing so dear to the heart of Christ as his bride should be left without explicit instructions as to her corporate conduct I am further convinced that the 20th century has in no way simulated this pattern in its method of churching a community. It is incumbent upon me if God has a pattern for the church to find and establish that pattern at all costs. Now brethren I've I've showed you four aspects of the New Testament pattern for the church. I wish I had another half an hour to expound upon them. I don't. Lord willing. Next time I can. But if we could just close in prayer, and then we can take the Lord's Supper together. Lord, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever, God. Lord, like the gray sky today, Lord, Lord, there's, there's, a, there's a gloom over your church, Lord. I, I see it, Lord. I see it throughout the brethren in the land, God, through the believers I know, God. Lord, there's a lack of expectancy of your strong hand to move, Lord. There's a lack of expectancy for you to come and bring glory to your church again, Lord, to bring life, to bring that depth of community, Lord, to bring that zeal that comes not from being mustered up in the flesh but through your spirit working and willing in us. Father, I ask you in some measure, I ask you to bless the brethren here, Lord. Bless these faithful brethren, God. Stir their hearts, God, Lord. Give, give, them, give them a greater vision of your power, Lord, Lord, and not to question if you can furnish a table in the wilderness, God, but that you would, you'd cause them to overflow with your spirit, to overflow with expectancy, to see your hand guide them, Lord, more and more in the days ahead, I ask in Jesus' name.